if I were to be sitting in a job that I took just to have something to do or because I was trying to figure it out and and it didn't feel right, it would immediately be obvious and I would feel it in my bones and people would see it written all over my face all day, every day. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Amazon's Black Stories, where we highlight the stories of Black designers, researchers, and creative minds from all around the world. I'm your host, Justin James Lopez, and today we're joined by Angela Silcott as we discuss the importance of balancing proficiency and passion in the work that you do. Let's hear her story. Well, thanks again for joining us, Angela. I wanted to start by just giving you a chance to introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is Angela Silcott. I am senior UX writer at Amazon in their global HR department, working on basically manager tools. Let's see, what can I tell you about myself? I've been a professional writer copy editor and proofreader for a little over 20 years. I've been in UX. I like to tell people I've been in UX since before it was called UX. We used to just call it writing the site. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Dating myself severely there. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. So I know for a fact that you are the first UX writer, copy editor, proofreader, any of all of the titles that you have that I've had on the show. So that's, that's really cool. And you, so you Woo-hoo. do this for HR yes. at Amazon. Yes. What, is, what does that mean? You teach human resources how to write or you teach them how to use their tools. What does that entail when it comes to your work? So what my writing does is helps our customers, which are managers and sometimes employees, mm-hmm. get through an experience or do a task And my role with the content I write is to make sure that what we're telling them is accurate, that it's going to help them be successful in whatever it is we're having them do. So a distinction that I, that I like to make that I I have found is very helpful for people is the distinction between marketing writing and UX writing. Mm -hmm. And just for the audience, some of you out there may know it as UX writing. Some of you out there may know it as content design There's been this whole hubbub over the past three to four years about what do we call it? And, you know, Meta calls it this and Apple calls it that. The distinction I like to make, there's marketing writing, and that is to get the customer to the experience, to tell them why they want to do the thing. UX writing or content design is to tell them how to do the thing. So that's what I do. It's everything from our customers land on a page And I'm telling them why they're there, what they're there to do. I'm explaining how to do that task. Let's say that they're there to give feedback on an experience that they had as an employee. I'm explaining to them, here's what you can do here. Here are the steps that are involved in it. And here's this form that you're going to fill out. And every piece of that form needs to have the correct explanation of what's going to happen. So we're asking you for your name. Then you're going to give a little description. Please try to be specific, use specific examples. And then nine times out of 10, there's a button. We call it a CTA, call to action. That button is going to 
do something, right? Every time you click a button on a site, if it's set up right, it'll do something. So we're not just going to say like, get started, click here. Like that's like, <laughs> yeah. so, it's so bad. Don't do that, people, please. If you take anything away from this conversation, stop using get started and click here. Yeah. So that button's going to tell them submit request or it's going to tell them go to step two, depending on what the process is. So that when that person clicks the button, they're very clear what's going to happen. That's essentially UX writing in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. What comes to mind for me is that old adage where, where they say to truly understand something, you have to have the ability to explain it to like a third grader. Right. So we're the third graders for you. Y'all are the third graders. I gotcha. And <laughs> to be fair, Amazon's prescribed reading level, depending on the department, is anywhere from sixth grade to tenth grade. So you're. <laughs> oh my goodness! I was not ready for that one. No, no. So, so this is so this is cool. So, when it comes to the work that you do, currently you're working within that kind of HR management tool space. Because I imagine, as we, like we just kind of joked about, but you have to really, really understand what the tools are or what the, you know, the function of the system is in order to be able to explain it because your metric is, can other people do this thing effectively? Right. But in that, I imagine there still has to be some type of personal joy in the work that you're doing. So what's maybe one of the coolest things that you've worked on and what's maybe one of the things that you're like, okay, I'm just, I'm collecting a paycheck and doing this thing right now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, before I answer that, I, I'm going to say that I'm going to duck back to to touch on something that you mentioned about needing to know the content, like needing to be really deep on it. That's a yes and a no, actually. Mm. It's surprisingly, that's an, a yes and a no. Yes, from the perspective of once I get going, it helps me to be able to explain the process better. But I actually like coming to a tool or a product or a project with zero knowledge because Interesting. it helps me literally be in the shoes of that first time customer. If I'm going through an experience, not knowing anything about it, and I'm like, well, I feel like I should be able to do this or I want to do this instead, but it's not telling me where and how to do that. That's information for me as the writer to be able to say, we need to tell them this. And, and you know, obviously we use research as well to, to back a lot of that up, but it does help give me the initial inklings. Now, to answer the question about projects that I, I have loved and ones that have made me want to claw my eyes out, I would say, you know, I, I was very fortunate a few years ago before my Amazon journey began. I worked for a startup that was in the biotechnology space. They had a wearable device for pregnant women. And it was to count contractions, read contractions, very fascinating technology. And I loved, loved, loved working on that as far as it had an app, it had a website, it, you know, and I was, I was talking to customers almost daily and kind of getting really deep into their experience with it. And as a mother, I'm a, I'm a mother, I have 11, an 11 year old child. It was just something that felt like really good, meaningful work to do. So that was great. Yeah. For a project that I just, 
I'm collecting a check. I will say that some of the more tactical, kind of dry managing tools that, <laughs> that Amazon has, I don't want to name any names, but I'll, I'll put it this way. As HR, not everything that we do is shiny, happy, great no. experiences, you know, right? Like, what? <laughs> Get out of here. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so working in HR, one of the types of projects that I, I don't particularly enjoy would definitely have to be the tools for times when an employee is maybe not having a really good experience or they're they're not at a at a good place in their in their time at Amazon or in their career. I want to be as helpful as possible and make the experience simple and clean and not a burden for that specific reason. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's usually a sad situation. So I, I don't really enjoy those too much. I imagine that's probably something that, and it feels a bit like a thankless job in the, those spaces mm -hmm. because I imagine on, as you were saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, some, sometimes when I'm having a pretty bad day and I'm frustrated and I'm, I have to go you know, to a new tool that I haven't learned and then I'm getting instructions, that can make or break your entire day, right? Like you, yes. you go to the new tool and you're like, all right, I'm already frustrated. I'm already in this heightened state. And then you have this experience where it's like, oh, this is actually really simple. This is something that made solving my problem very easy. And in my mind, that's something where the person instantly dropped in their overall stress level. Like, oh, this is simple. I just do this, that, and the third, and, and then I can solve my problem. But they're not going to hit the thank you button, right? Like, of like, hey, no. thank you for solving this problem for me. So simply, we feel entitled to the solution. And we feel entitled to the solution being simple that we don't think sometimes that there's a person responsible for solving this before we even interact. And I, I was thinking about your point earlier where you made the statement of walking into a scenario where you, you don't really know much about the product or the tool or the system because then you're basically walking the store, right? And you're, you're right. interacting with all of the things that fall apart, that all of the things that a person is going to experience. So it's like, while it may be boring and it's boring for us to have to go through it, but you're solving this problem so that we don't quit our jobs. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I want the experience to be boring. If I'm writing something and it's going to make you frustrated, want to contact support, abandon the experience, then I, I haven't done my job properly. I should be invisible. Yeah. We as the product, as the makers of the of the product, of the tool, should be invisible. And and I think you're right. I, I do agree with you. I think there's this expectation that things should work a certain way. They should be, you know, effortless, flawless ready to help you right out of the box. And I, I like to take a farther step back when I think about my customers. Yes, they are employees, but I often like to go into scenarios in my mind where it's like, it's not just a software developer in Chicago who's been at Amazon for four years. It's a software developer who's a mom and her kid was sick 
that morning and she's got a lot on her mind and she's got six projects that are hurtling toward launch. You know, like I want to cover as much ground as I can for my customers and make it so that that experience is as clean as it can be. I, of course, obviously I can't take into account every possible scenario, but I do find that by thinking about people as whole entities and not just the individual facets of how my tools interact with them, just as Amazon employee, um, I do find that it does make a difference. It makes for better work. Yeah. You find all of these pockets, especially when you think of it at at Amazon, like when we talk about the idea of customer obsession, Mm -hmm. the level of customer obsession in the work that you do, I think is through the roof because you're literally saying, how do I preemptively solve problems that even the 1% problems Mm -hmm. where I understand, and I think it's natural for you to say, we're never going to solve everything. There's no way for one individual or even a group of individuals to look at every single perspective. Or maybe, you know, maybe I'm just that one person that will run into every wall. And it's like, well, you can't, <laughs> you can't always account for Justin breaking the system. <laughs> what I was thinking as you were kind of talking was how interesting it is to be in a space where all you're thinking about is how do I lower the stress of another person? Not just in the scenarios where they're already having a bad day, but in some of these other scenarios where you talk about the tracker for for pregnancy, Mm -hmm. where you really love that product. When you think about it, you're thinking about how do I preemptively solve problems so that other people don't have to feel this level of stress? Yeah. Where did that come from for you? And I'm trying to stretch back to like, how do we even get to being a UX writer, to being this level of problem solver, this customer obsession Where's the root of that? Justin, honestly, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I was born this way. It's really frightening to think about. You know, and I'm sure some of it is like childhood trauma. Like like there's probably therapists out there listening that are like, oh, girl, that's, you know, (laughs) you got to unpack that. I was always a fixer. I identify as a fixer. And I was always resourceful, helpful. I was a connector in the sense that, oh, if a friend said that they were interested in something and I knew I had another friend who was involved in that or had recently mentioned something about that, I would connect them. That to me, it comes from, I am analytical and I solve puzzles and love love resolving things. I always have. I was the person in my family who, if my mom needed to talk to the cable company and like they were being stupid about the prices or, you know, like that type of stuff, she'd put me on the phone. I was the customer service person. Yeah, I've been doing this forever. I I was also essentially born a writer, wrote my first poem when I was five, wrote a play in sixth grade that ended up being produced as the school's Christmas play. Now, I say all of that. That's my journey, my experience. But I I want to be very, very, very clear to our audience out there that you do not need to be born a writer. You do not need to be born a fixer to do this. You do not. That just happened to be my path, my, you know, my mix of, of elements. I know many, many 
UX writers who came into this from totally different experiences, realms, weren't writers to begin with, and they're doing fine. (laughs) So I just want to clear that up. Did you ever think about taking your writing? Because you mentioned starting with poems and plays. Mm -hmm. Had you ever considered moving in a different direction with your writing and doing more of like the entertainment-based writing scripts, movies, no sitcoms, any of this stuff. Where did that part of your dream go? So here's the thing with that. One thing that I became very clear about early on, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you ask, I'm a horrible storyteller. Like, I hear myself, <laughs> I'm serious. That's, that's kind of important for those other It's kind jobs. of important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You should have started with that. (laughs) I know. I know. You know, it's like I hear myself tell a story and I'm like, yeah, that was awful. Or like, I am not an idea person. I cannot come up with stories and engaging things. If you tell me what to talk about, I can find a way to talk about it. I can find a way to write about it, but I cannot. I've heard it called ideaphoria. Where I heard that term, there is aptitude testing given by a company called Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation. And what they do, and it's, you know, it's not like one of these online and you take the quiz, you know, type of things. Like it is heavy duty, two days going and sitting with a, a tester and doing physical tasks and stuff to figure out this type of stuff. And it costs some money, but it was easily the best investment I ever made in my career because one thing that it did really well, first of all, it identified me as a fixer. It confirmed that. I knew that. Mm -hmm. But it was like, yes, you are. And here's why. And here, here are the things that point to that. And here are the things you should think about related to that. The other thing it did was it was like ideaphoria, the ability to come up with creative ideas. That's not your jam, sis. So (laughs) I was like, okay, good. I, I'm I'm very clear now that that's how I'm built, and that's totally okay. And I'm not going to write the great American novel because y'all would fall asleep. So yeah, <laughs> this is something that's always been interesting to me because I I'm the type of person that is motivated when people tell me that I can't do things. Mm, was that ever um, is that is that what that's the, the testing center would say that oh you are hard-headed uh, there's nothing else to your profile and I will say that it has led me down paths where I get decent at things that I don't really care about just because you know I didn't like the concept of saying that I'm not good at the thing ah. it sounds like you don't suffer from that No. Because I've always believed, well, you can really, similar to, it's similar to your comment of like, you don't have to be born a great writer to be a UX writer. But for me, I kind of extrapolate that in different spaces of like, I can probably, there are limitations. Sure. If you're 4'11", you probably aren't going to the NBA. Like that's just, (laughs) it's just the thing. Tell that to Spud Webb. (laughs) Fair, 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 fair. But I, I think that, that I'm one of those people, hard-headed is a way to describe it, where when, if if I were to have gotten that result of like, oh, you're, you're just not an idea person, then I yeah. would have spent the next year trying to come up with like 
10 new ideas every single day. And he was like, I got to come up with 10 new ideas every single day. And I would have like just failed, 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 or, you know, maybe not. And I don't know if that would have solved that, or maybe it would just been, maybe it's like, no, you can come up with ideas. It's just going to be hell. Yeah. But that's my personality. I'm curious. Yeah. Where do you draw the line? Because you're you're saying that it's motivated by being told that you can't. So you take it as a challenge instead of information. Yeah. And you're going to spend the next year doing that. Is there a point where you're like, okay, I've I've kind of already proved one way or the other. And now I'm just going to stop? Or are you one of those people who is also like, well, I started this. I got to see it through. Now I've, I've had 10, you know, 10 great ideas, you know, come up with 10 great ideas a day. And now I have to do something with those ideas and turn that into a thing. And then five years from now, you're like totally off on a different path. hundred percent. That's how my life has been. Honestly, that is hundred percent how my life has been. People tell That's me, awesome. people go, "This is not a thing," and it's always random what my brain clings on to. Like it mm-hmm. could be, you know, maybe it's you know you you can't run fast, or maybe it's like you're not an idea person. And I'm like, you know what? I give up on running fast. But I am an idea person. Don't like that you think I'm not. Now I'm going to be idea person. Then I'm working for I don't know some. Marvel coming up with their mm-hmm. next movie. And then like, oh, this guy couldn't come up with an idea to save his life three years ago. And now he's pitching all of these movies. <laughs> and then I go, ah, but I really don't like this. I don't like this. So I'm going to go do something else. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I'm getting at is when we get this information and I, for one, I lo- I'm going to get more of that, uh, more information on that center because I, I, I think I want to do that too, to just really like get a deep dive into what's going on with me. But when we get this information, we have these different ways to look at it, to interpret it, to kind of like consume it. And sometimes we have healthy approaches and sometimes we have unhealthy <laughs> approaches. But what I find interesting is the root of it may not ever change, right? Like say that example that we're going through and it's happened to me where it's someone will say, hey, this just not, might not be your jam. And then I go like, I'm going to, I'm going to make it my fucking jam. Like this is going to be my jam. And then I get good at something that I hate. Yeah. Like why? The thing is like, there's a proficiency thing. There's a thing of like, you can be proficient at something, but that doesn't mean you have passion for it. Proficiency versus passion. That's a, you know, and where do you, where do you lie on that spectrum? So I am very much one of those people that I have to enjoy what I'm doing. I can't fake the funk. I have done that at different points in my career and have just been like, I don't care enough about this to to fake this. So I need a certain amount of passion. And for me, I've been fortunate in that the passion part can be fed by just getting to write. Mm Mm-hmm. Like over the course of my career, I've written about a variety of topics that would bore the paint off the walls. And I don't need the topic itself to be like, I don't need to be lit up by it. It's helpful if it is. But just being able to write or being able to edit, proofread, that generally is my passion and I love it. So, yeah. Yeah. So we're on different parts of the spectrum, for sure. Totally. Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I felt my chest get tight when you were talking about, like, I'm going to spend a year trying to do this thing. I'm like, Locked brother. Locked in now. 
that is nothing drives me crazier than like investing time in something that is just not going to not my yeah yes yes that not your thing but you know what i think for me where it's rooted is i remember my first day of college my father dropped me off and i remember this is the first moment where me and my father we were never really close you know, we love each other. We care about each other, but we never, we never really had those moments where you know. Let me ask you for advice. Can I ask you for advice? Right in those moments. So this was, I think, the first time I had ever done it. And I'm, I'm in, I'm a kid, 18 years old, going to college, getting dropped off. And I remember, you know, I was always that the person that came across as, I know it. I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to, you know, whatever. Yeah. But then I turned. I remember we're putting my stuff in my dorm. I'm going back to the car to say goodbye to my mom and dad. And I, I just like almost broke down and I was just like, what do I do? Because I'm so lost and I have no idea. I didn't think I was going to get here. Mm-hmm. Now I'm here and I have no idea what to do. And, you know, there was, it's layered, right? I was, I went to a predominantly white institution. That's not where I, the area that I grew up. So I grew up not around white people at all. So it was just like, so much culture shock, all of this stuff just kind of colliding. And I, f- I think all the pressure finally got me to the point where I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to study. Everything was told to me up until this point. I have no idea. And I remember his response. And at the time, I hated it. And as I've gotten older, I realized it was the best advice I ever got. He said, why don't you find something you love mm-hmm. and go be great at it? There you go. Again, I hated the advice. So <laughs> at the time... Why did you hate it? Were you looking for him to say mechanical engineering, Justin? Yeah, uh, that's okay. exactly what it was. Yep. Okay. Again, at the time, I was in this space where all of the life was planned, right? You go to school, they tell you what to study. They tell you what, you know, you study what's on the test. You answer the test. If you answer what's on the test appropriately, then you're smart. If not, you're dumb. Like these are all of the things that I was raised with, especially growing up in the area that I grew up in, which was not a good area. It was all about these metrics. So that's all that mattered. And now I'm looking at this green space and it was crippling to me. So the advice was basically take the green space and run. And I was yeah. like, I don't know how to do that. Like, That's so, very hard. That's very hard. So what I ended up doing was I translated the information to be, why don't you find things that you're good at and be great at them? And that translated to find things that you think you can be good at and go be great at them. And I completely lost the passion part of it. And that's kind of what I'm talking about from the proficiency versus passion conversation. I focused solely on proficiency. And I lost the passion. Ah. Oh no. And that's why I found myself going from position to position, trade to trade, skill to skill, company to company, trying to find out what was the thing for me, which is why I love these conversations for this series, because I meet people that are like, you know what? I just landed in the thing that I really like to do, man. Like that's, that's what I'm doing. You know, sometimes there's boring parts of it and that's fine. Sometimes I, you know, I'm living in, in my true self, but what, never changes is that you're existing in that passion space. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I I love it. I I really need that. I I am one of these like emotional, quote unquote, deep feeling people. (laughs) (laughs) And I have no filter. So it's 
and no poker face. I, I was born without a poker face. So if I were to be sitting in a job that I took just to have something to do or because I was trying to figure it out and and it didn't feel right, it would immediately be obvious and I would feel it in my bones and people would see it written all over my face all day, every day. So I, as a result, have to be very intentional about the work I do and the things that I that I choose to put my time in. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting hearing your background because very similar. I was a a gate kid and, you know, in honors classes and it, it was all very prescribed. You know, it was like everything had a solution. Everything had an answer. Every path had a step and it was very clear to see what to do. And I kind of ended up in a similar situation to what you described where went to a PWI and it was culture shock for me. It was East Coast versus West Coast, like not a rap battle, but I am from <laughs> LA. <laughs> I'm from LA yeah. and went back East to college and it was just a totally different vibe. And everybody there, you know, at my school of 6,000 people, they were all the valedictorian, the really smart kid at their school. Yeah, That gets stripped away. You have to really take a look at yourself and be like, okay, well, who am I beyond the SAT, beyond the scholarships, beyond the whatever metrics it is? Where, who am I as, as the substance behind that? So college for me as well was like a very eye-opening experience. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Who, who am I when I strip away all of these superficial titles? Yeah. Who am I? Because that, that's, that's, that's a powerful question. I don't know. I spend most of my time on these calls interviewing people, asking questions. Mm-hmm. That is a very tough question to answer, right? Like if, if some, <laughs> you put somebody on the spot and say, hey, strip away all of these titles, who are you? And it's a very difficult thing. And I think that that, especially at a college, as a college student, being the first question to answer, I think it's probably one of the most important questions to answer, but it's definitely not the easiest. I wanted to ask this because you dropped a couple of gems, quite a few gems actually throughout this conversation, but what is one thing or a few things, however many you have mm-hmm. that you know now that you think would have been important to to learn as you were developing in your career to help you develop faster or not even faster, but more proficiently or whether that's from a professional lens or from a joy lens? Mm. One thing that I, I was recently reflecting on was having an open mind and trusting that, yes, you know what you know, 21, 22-year-old Ange, but <laughs> there are there are people who know a lot more than you and you should want to learn from those people and not feel challenged by them. See, I, I in my first official, you were hired to be a writer job. I was a, what was called a marketing communication specialist for farmer's insurance at their headquarters. And in all of my abundant wisdom as a, how old was I? (laughs) I was like, you know, 23, 24 and, and was like, oh, these people, they are so out of, you know, outdated. They don't know what they're doing. They need to improve this process. I like, I wrote up process guides and how to improve and blah, blah, blah. And I was surrounded by people like, the VP of our department was a veteran newspaper editor and just had decades of good knowledge 
And my my immediate manager was similar background, like had been a journalist for many years. And I could have been sitting there like soaking up good knowledge about how to be a professional writer. But instead, I was on my, I'm good at what I do. I know what I'm talking about. You guys are dinosaurs and there's nothing I can learn from you. Yeah. And I think that did me such a disservice. I ended up leaving that job without another job lined up because I was like, oh, I, this is terrible. And then looking back on it, it was like, oh, you were such a twit. Like you, <laughs> you wasted. <laughs> 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 yeah. Like you were annoying. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, a, it's like you can't, you can't fill a cup that's already full. Right, right. You, if you fill it with all of the things that you think you already know, then you'll never be able to have a new perspective on those things. Exactly. That's a, yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good one. Well, Angela, thank you again for joining us on this show, man. I, I think this has been this has been really cool. Again, this year I feel like is going to be a lot of first. I'm meeting a lot of people in spaces that I've never actually interacted with. I've known about the spaces, but so you're the first... And I mean, also for the audience of this show, you're the first UX writer that has been on the show. We got a couple of other firsts coming up as well. So I'm really excited. But thank you again. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It is always a pleasure to talk to you and to the audience. Thank you. Thank you all. Love you. <laughs>